Welcome to Post-Normal Times, a podcast for our complex reality and unpredictable world, where stakes are high and innovation is crucial. In this series, I get to sit down with some of my favorite minds to explore new ideas that transcend traditional academic boundaries and address our most pressing needs. I'm Andrew Vasco, Associate Provost and Director of Transdisciplinary Studies at Claremont Graduate University. Welcome to the show. I would like to welcome you all back for this week's episode, where we don't discuss business as usual. We discuss business in an ever-changing transdisciplinary world. And I am very, very happy to introduce our guest, Dr. Gloria Gonzalez-Morales, who is in our Division of Behavioral and Organizational Sciences at Claremont Graduate University. Is that correct? Yes. You and, did well. You uh, do it better than me. I, there's a lot of acronyms here at, yes. at Claremont Graduate University slash CGU. Um, and you are a an, wait, formal title is Associate Professor of... <laughs> <laughs> of uh, I think it's Organizational Psychology. Organizational Psychology. Okay. So my first memory of you... Mm-hmm. was when I was presenting something at a board meeting, um, I remember you sticking your face out from that very long table at the other end and asking a question about what is transdisciplinarity or you wanted to know more about the program. I'm like, who, who is this person that I've never met before, but I'm very happy to know here? Um, and how did you become interested in this notion of, of what we were talking about? It's like, what piqued your interest in it to even mm-hmm. ask that question in the first place? I know a lot of people come here for that reason, but I hadn't met you before you got here. So how, how did you come to be interested? Um, I always have been interested on in the idea of interdisciplinarity mm-hmm. that is different, mm-hmm. as, as we all know. <laughs> from transdisciplinary. <laughs> and a lot of people confuse it. But I always have been interested on on kind of crossing those boundaries between disciplines. And, you know, right now I feel like I'm a psychologist transforming into a sociologist because I have, like, these questions that I feel that I need to answer with different methods, different approaches, like taking, um, you know, I have always loved history and art and art. Uh, or history of art. So every time I'm thinking about like, oh, how is this connected to this? And so I, I will say that I have a, a transdisciplinary like kind of way of thinking or way of inquiring about the questions that I'm interested in research. Um, so I had never heard this transdisciplinary concept before you said that. I think I saw it in the website and I said something about it on my on my job talk. But I was assuming that it was the same thing. It was just a fancier word mm-hmm. to talk about interdisciplinarity. Mm-hmm. And then when you started to talk about it and explain it, I was like, this is actually very cool. I mm-hmm. love the idea of wicked problems. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea of, you know, like kind of in, um, including human-centered design or systems mm-hmm. design, like all these more complex ways of thinking about problems mm-hmm. really fascinate me mm-hmm. because I think that's all the problems that we have in humanity are really there, are in that gray scale, like yeah. nothing is black or white. Yeah. And half of my time, you know, debating with my father or with other people is kind of trying <laughs> that, to get to the idea that there is a shade of gray mm-hmm. and that that's also related to other things. <laughs> but that, you know, things are not black or white, that things are not simple. They're mm-hmm. complex. And for complex questions, we need complex systems mm-hmm. and complex solutions. Mm-hmm. 
You know, it's it's funny what you said is something that resonated so much. Everybody heard about interdisciplinarity, but we hadn't heard about transdisciplinarity. But it sounds so much cooler when you can say that in a cocktail party because that mm-hmm. must mean you know more about it. And when I had started getting into this world myself, very similarly, I had really, in, you know, I embraced that interdisciplinary idea as well. And it really clicked with me when I read or heard in a conversation somewhere, I was like, it's not about the discipline. That's the entire message of transdisciplinarity. It's you recognize that you have them, but the whole point is to not focus on them. The whole point is to focus on the issue mm-hmm. because a discipline is a manufactured thing. It's not a badly manufactured thing. It's a manufactured thing. The problem is the thing that's actually real. Like it, that's, that really exists. A discipline exists because we created it to study something and it's exactly. a very different thing. So mm-hmm. when you start doing that and you start realizing you're allowed, you give yourself permission to be a sociologist and a historian of art and an activist and uh, and uh, you bring situated knowledge and experience to what you're doing. As a, you could bring your experience as a daughter or as a sister or as like those things all matter in the inquiry that you're doing and you realize it's inquiry and not discipline. That's the most now, the thing that always got me in trouble was when I would try explaining that to a b- bunch of people who've been in their disciplines for the past 40 years. There's a little bit of like, so what are you saying about me? <laughs> like, <laughs> and so how have you reconciled that? Because you have been a psychologist for a long time. I mean, not that long, but you, your career has been to do this. Um, so how do I reconcile like my identity as a, as a scientist in a specific discipline? Uh, you are, how have you been able to accept the transdisciplinary idea while also having this identity where you've devoted a lot of your life to being a psychologist and the training and the, and the culture of it, essentially? Because mm-hmm. you, you have to do quite a bit of acculturation and being allowed into that space. There's a lot of effort that goes into that. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, but this, what if I'm not following the discipline anymore? What if I'm following the problem? How did you start to think of yourself that way? I have a perfect transdisciplinary example. Oh, good. Um, so there's this painter that I don't know if you have heard of him. Uh, is Spanish. His name was Pablo Picasso. I may have. You may have. Yes. Okay. Most people know his work based on, you know, uh, the, the cubist, right? Like mm-hmm. it's all these lines, all these, like they, he has... The Davignon Manmesuel are like these three, I think it's three women, and but they don't look like women. Like everything is distorted, like it's in cubicle or line forms. Uh, so he had, he has broken a mold by, you know, starting with cubism. And it's not only with Picasso, like right. there's many, many cubist artists. But you need to understand that Picasso goes through a pink and a blue face mm-hmm. before getting into cubism. He needs to learn the art, the craft, all the bases, how everything works, and be excellent at it, mm-hmm. as he was, mm-hmm. to break with it, to break the mold, mm-hmm. and to create something totally different that changed actually how, how, how we understand art after that time. Mm-hmm. Not only him, but everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the other part, right? I don't want to highlight Picasso as a genius. We also have problems with certain behavior that he mm-hmm. <laughs> conducted. Um, I, I think that also we need to, transdisciplinarity allow us to understand knowledge, inquiry, art, expression as a collective effort that we do. Mm-hmm. Nobody does anything. Nobody's a genius mm-hmm. on themselves, mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. themselves, right? Like mm-hmm. 
Picasso is nothing if there's not he's not living in Paris around all the other artists. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to compare myself to Picasso. Wow. <laughs> I like I'm gonna come up with one tonight by myself. <laughs> Just pretend that happens. I'm not gonna share that with anybody, but I think it's a great idea. Um, but I think that in order to transcend the boundaries of your own discipline, you need to learn your discipline well. You mm-hmm. need to understand well what I, I explain to my students in organizational theory. You need to understand the ontology and the epistemology of what you have you are studying for a long time to then start to understand that there's other ways of knowing and other ways of understanding um, the reality, like the ontology, and then the epistemology, like, and what can we figure out through that. Mm-hmm. So this is how I reconcile that. I feel like I'm growing, that I'm, I'm growing up, I am transforming, and by, by, use, by breaking up, I'm not breaking up with psychology, uh, that's my identity still, but I'm so excited, for example, to go to a conference on qualitative methods in organizational research with people from a lot of very different disciplines next week. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, again, I, I think you're you're telling something that I really can relate to because in 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 the effort to be more transdisciplinary, you have to look at the trans prefix in three ways, at least three ways. Mm -hmm. One of them is transcending the discipline, which means you have to have a very strong foundation in that disciplinary space in order so that you can't even transcend. Otherwise, you're just dilettanting. And I think dilettanting is really fun. I love it. But that... But if you need you, rigor. You need rigor. And so I often will compare it to knowing language. And so hmm. you can... You have to be fluent in at least one language. Oh, yes. <laughs> and if you're going to be doing the transdisciplinary thing, you need to be conversant, at least in one or two more. Mm-hmm. And so you learn fluency first, and that helps with your conversational disciplinary speak in other languages. But it gives that gives you the basic tools to understand how to understand other disciplines. Because mm-hmm. once you look at things as a psychologist, if you go into something sociological or, or historical or whatever it is, you still know some basics about critical inquiry. Like you understand how to be skeptical in a healthy way and, and have like, I think it was what called the, the hermeneutics of suspicion. Mm-hmm. Like, is this really right? How do I know this is really right? Exactly. And you can bring that to anything. So the thing that I hold on to most about my own undergraduate education was that I studied Japanese language and literature first, and then I got into the neuroscience world second. And I viewed all of my education after that actually as foreign language acquisition. So that's my metaphor in my mind, which Mm -hmm. I think for complex ideas, going back to complexity, metaphors have been very, very useful for me. But, you know, like, because I remembered what it felt like when I started to learn enough Japanese to learn a lot of Japanese, then I tried learning Korean, which... For the record, I failed at. <laughs> and I tried reading more Chinese, which I also failed at. But I, I understood, I mean, had I really put the time in and like, I know I could have become more educated. I mean, people who study this stuff do become mm-hmm. more educated in Korean and Chinese if they're studying Japanese because there are links to, to move forward and you know how to study the language in that way. So when I learned science, I realized that itself was its own language. And once I became fluent in one version of that, I could then speak some other languages. And I think that that's what a lot of what we're doing in disciplinary spaces is like you're learning a foreign 
language. You're learning a foreign culture. You're learning a, a, a bunch of things that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of that way. So I want to add to that because you did your grad work in Spain. Mm-hmm. You did your postdoc work on the East Coast. Yes. And you lived in then Canada. Yes. And then you moved back to Southern California because mm-hmm. you missed our rainy weather that we're exactly. having for the last thing. So, okay, in terms of learning, certainly, I mean, if if your first language was not English, you had to learn English as an, as an additional language, but you're multiculturally versed as well in this process. In addition to learning the cultures of the disciplines, you've had to learn the cultures of different research institutions, different regions, different countries, at least three or four, and then you had a lot of other travel going on in between. Okay, so you're... Scholarly identity is very interesting. How do you hold on to all of that, and how does it find its way into your work now? So let me add to all that that you have said about me, um, that while I was in grad school every single summer, I traveled somewhere. So my first time, I was a month in Paris. Maybe that's why I was thinking about Picasso. Possibly. Uh, the second year, I went to York University in Canada, in Toronto. Well, some people will say that it's York because it's the north of Toronto. Uh, and then after that, I went to Germany uh, the third year, and I worked in the Walter Reed Army Institute. So it was mm, funny because I was I in Germany, yeah. but I was, I was, I started to see the culture, the American culture of science, because we were doing research uh, at the Walter Reed. And then after that, in the following year, I went to Sweden. So I spent the whole summer in Lund University mm-hmm. and taking, taking the train all the time to, Kopenha- to Co- Copenhagen mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to have fun there too. So anyways, um, just to say that it's so much part of my identity to collaborate with other people. Mm-hmm. Like Because every time I went to these places, it's not, it's not that I just decided that I was going to go. I had to put together a, a scholarship proposal, so to get the funds and to really justify why I had to go to all these different places. Mm-hmm. So when I went to Walter Reed, for example, was to work with Dr. Paul Blisi, who at the time was the director of the, of the unit there for the mental health uh, research, to learn multi-level analysis for him, from him, right? Um, but when I went to uh, Canada, I was working on gender studies and health with Dr. Esther Greenglass. So my mentors back in Spain really helped me and, and told me, like, you, no, no, you need to get out of here. You need to see other ways of thinking, other ways of doing things, and, and to build your, your network of connections. Because as an academic, that's, that's how we work and how we grow, through mm-hmm. collaboration. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a good seed to be planted for someone who then can then start transcending not only your own culture, your country, but that it can transcend disciplines and can think about more complex problems uh, to answer with their research or so, their scholarship. So has it always been easy for you to collaborate? Because of the, do you find that the cultures of collaboration in American academia are readily available to do so? Or do you find that it actually has a different set of challenges than you expected from your own training during those summers? It's interesting because I think that at the end it's just a question of choosing well your Mm co-authors and not so much a culture issue. Mm -hmm. Academically, there's different ways of collaboration when you compare Europe with the States Mm -hmm. um, in terms of how there's, you know, there's more hierarchy in departments, in Mm -hmm. academic departments in Europe. There's actually, uh, in Germany, actually, like, in order to be full professor, the previous one has to either retire or decide that they leave academia mm-hmm. or die mm-hmm. <laughs> for you to become a full professor, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of hierarchy and a lot of pressure 
to conform to the norms of the department. And, and so the collaboration is kind of forced. Mm -hmm. Here in the States, collaboration is more like an option, mm -hmm. really, specifically when, you know, for tenure and promotion as an academic, people want to see what is your work, what mm -hmm. is your independent work, how, what is, you know, how do you think you personally as an individual? And that's what I was making reference before to, like, Picasso didn't become Picasso by himself. Mm -hmm. No artist, no scholar can say that they have created of all this knowledge by just thinking in their own heads alone. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that that's a fallacy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The whole thing about the superhero scholar that has written all these papers and they are like these academics. That the more we collaborate, the more we exchange ideas, the more complex these ideas become and the more useful. So that's going back to the transdisciplinarity. And if we continue in the States kind of like rewarding only individualism in terms of like, what is your career? Like, what are your first authorships? Mm -hmm. Then we are preventing people, especially like more junior scholars, from going towards that interdisciplinarity at the very basic level, but transdisciplinarity, because then when you work in a transdisciplinary team, who's the first author? Yeah, this is one of the big issues of shared, which a lot of people have, have written about and have tried coming up with different compromises for, is what is one's value? How, how can that be determined if you're doing a transdisciplinary practice in an individualistic culture? Because you're evaluated on your impact factor, your first author publications, your and these these issues end up becoming, of course, without question, institutionalized issues. So how do you change your institution to promote more collaborative work? And this is where some another really interesting point comes up. You can say transdisciplinary and you can say interdisciplinary in one side. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 yeah. We've been hearing that for a hundred years. <laughs> and There's been a movement to be interdisciplinary, a very strong movement for the past like 75 years in the United States where we've had politicians working with our higher education system to say, we have interdisciplinary needs, do it, do it, do it. And then, you know, eventually it kind of transformed to, we call it a bunch of things, implementation sciences needs or science of team science. We have a whole bunch of, of, of different jargon around it. Um, but then when the rubber meets the road, An institution will gladly say that they're inter or transdisciplinary. And then you say, how? Like, what are you doing? And what that often translates to is, well, we have lots of different departments. <laughs> That's news. I've never heard of a university that has lots of different departments. But there are questions like, so what does your tenure structure look like for people who collaborate? Like, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a really good question. Yes. And I'm not sure there's a single university that has tackled that successfully because of the legacy problem of tenure and promotion that is based on people with a full professorship. And the original question I asked you is, how did you Picasso yourself into your current scholarly identity? But take somebody who's been doing the same scholarly building in a much longer term. So they've been doing this for six or seven decades now. Mm -hmm. And they're the one who has full professorship, and they're occupying that committee because in tenure and promotion, that's, that's how this stuff works. And so now you have to ask yourself, this, this heart of a system, how do you chip away at this so that this is no longer? And it's one of the really interesting things that we all work with in this world is how do we change universities? I have to tell you that I've had, I've had the ear of people being interested in this before from like at every school that I've, I've mm -hmm. been involved with, but I, I have not 
been able to overthrow this <laughs> this system. I mean, that one that one's very embedded. That's very wicked. That problem. Mm-hmm. Not to say that disciplines are bad. And I always make that disclaimer um, because they're also the foundation of a university. You have to have a d- disciplinary allegiance too, and it's the tension between the discipline and the institution that often gives shape to the university. The problem is when you forget that the discipline is an artifact. <laughs> it's not real. It's just it was a construct of other things, and that everything that that, that happens that the university is now trying to address has to has to both acknowledge the the existence of that discipline and the non-existence of, of that discipline in reality. You know, the, the world has problems. Universities have departments. That's mm-hmm. my, that's one of the transdisciplinary phrases that I love so much. <laughs> so if you were to look at this as an organizational scientist, because that's what you do, and you see a institutional system problem that has a legacy to it that is going to have a feedback loop that keeps it going. How would you look at this from your own grounding, um, being that you understand organizations and you understand behaviors? And from that, you've also understood some other things. Like you, have, if you're into sociology, you probably understand <laughs> frameworks and power. Mm-hmm. You probably understand... Oh, power. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm guessing that I'm guessing yes. I'm going on a limit that mm-hmm. you think about things like that when you're when you're integrating that into your own sense of um, how do you look at a system like this and what kind of insight would you give where there could be change made? That's that's a million dollar question. Mm-hmm. I, I can tell you that it looks like hmm, some things are going to change because they're kind of like already changing, like not necessarily like let's talk about how things are going to change by kind of osmosis, like something is going to break at some point, but it's going to break all the system. Mm -hmm. And then things that we could do to move to a more design change towards a system that is more sustainable. Mm -hmm. But it looks like given how we are hiring right now in higher education, um, there's less tenure track positions. That's true. There's more adjunct. Uh, positions. I would love that instead of adjunct positions, they were like clinical positions. Actually, in CGU, we have a lot of those. A lot of those, and, yes. And we, like at CGU, I think that we're well positioned to really like take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. So we should be thinking about this. So I think that over time, uh, and there's, we already know that, you know, there are states in this country where they're already thinking about um not having, you know, not having tenure in the state mm-hmm. universities anymore, mm-hmm. uh, abolishing tenure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and worse. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there has been a little bit of um, a debate in the academia saying, well, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. You know, let's take out yep. the idea of tenure. And then by doing that, yes, you're you're removing one of the things that are good, that the only good thing that is there that is good <laughs> about academia, that is that safety, comfort feeling of, oh, I'm tenure, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And I feel like a lot of us are in academia because we never wanted to go to the real world. <laughs> and we were like, okay, I will suffer for seven years until I get tenure because then after that it will be fine. So I understand that the people who have suffered and people who are full professors now who have suffered over many years until like being tenure, being promoted to associate, being promoted to full. I understand that, you know, this is very similar and, you know, transdisciplinary like metaphor, very similar to the idea of the debt, you know, the the education loans mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and how a lot of people are saying, oh, so if you're going to pardon them, 
what about all the money that I paid back? Mm-hmm. Right? Like I see that problem in a very similar way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this problem is going to break itself it, itself down at some point. Uh, universities are not going to be what they are right now. We are having less uh, enrollment as well, like fewer people coming to universities and not only at the graduate level, undergraduate too. This is going to kind of like happen. So it's going to be the unstructured. Yeah by itself but then we have options right before that happens we can for example start thinking about how do we promote and support clinical and adjunct faculty Mm -hmm. so with their if they want to do research for example uh, especially if it is collaborative and transdisciplinary how can we put support there for that Mm -hmm. how can we think about creating a process where the tenure and promotion guidelines are revised by everybody mm-hmm. in in the faculty mm-hmm. and not only you know mm-hmm. the higher level professors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and what does it take to do that and that's going to be context specific each organization has very different you know some 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 organizations have senates where you have to pass regulations some of them so you know there's very different ways of doing it and also i think that there's going to be a little bit of a reconfiguration of the ranks i think that I have a paper on on this. It's, it's, it's kind of like it's, I just wrote an essay about relational practices in academia. Mm-hmm. That was like a couple of years ago. And I talk about how we just have to lift each other up, uh, especially minor- minorities in academia. Mm-hmm. Like if we lift each other up and if we don't become queen bees, right? Mm-hmm. Like because mm-hmm. the queen bees are the queen bees because there's a hive, mm-hmm. not because we're bees. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... If we don't become these people that are trying to step on top of others, but to lift each other up, I think that there could be like a little bit, a little bit of a progression of the academic ranks that can allow for more collaboration. But it's going to take forever, the same way that you know DEI efforts take forever. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it is certainly slow. But I want to go back to something you said that really just like wowed because I forgot how that felt. So when you said a lot of people go into academia because they don't want to be in the real world. <laughs> And I thought about what a paradox that is. And that's not how it feels at CGU. I mean, we're, we're very different than that here. Yeah. But um, I remember people who would stay in academic lifestyles that I went to grad school with forever because they said they had to do this because they could never wear a suit and tie. That whole statement also is, a, I can see the error in, in that analysis, that that idea of real world is one that's highly professionalized in a way that's a corporate structure that they feel is the only alternative to whatever it is that we're doing in higher ed, which is also extremely diverse, the things that you could do in higher ed, extremely diverse. You could be very corporate in higher ed. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You, you may have to wear yeah. a, a suit fact, and tie. In fact, I like wearing a suit and tie when I get <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad this isn't videoed. Um, I come in a suit and tie every time. Um, but I, I think that that concept that there's this and the real world is one of the more problematic com- concepts that, that, that sits out there. Because if you ask yourself the question of what is the point of the university, what is it to do? It's to create, discover, produce knowledge, essentially. Mm-hmm. For whom? <laughs> <laughs> For the not real world? <laughs> like, what's supposed to happen? And if you're not thinking about it in terms of its applications to the real world, then are you trying to transcend yourself? I mean, are, 
are you transcendent in your self-concept? <laughs> Have you gone so far past everything that you're not realizing that this world is is the thing that you're in this for and not and 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 not the haven that that yeah. metaphor of the university is. It is a special space, certainly. But I think the haven idea is a little dangerous because it keeps you from and it's not true. And yeah. and it actually goes back to, I think that when you were saying all that, I was thinking about this other dichotomy that is um, basic and applied science. Yeah. And I can think of people who do basic science being more like thinking that they're in the haven, like in their yeah. own lab and doing their own thing and not yeah, you know yeah, worrying yeah. about because they are just doing basic science. They yeah. just want to learn how things work yeah. for the sake of learning how they work. And then yeah. someone else that would be doing applied science, that they actually, a lot of them don't think that they're real scientists because they do apply. And I have seen this in a lot of very different disciplines. Like I have friends who are astronomers. I have a friend who's an astronomer who was specialized on building instruments. And her, the other astronomers don't think of her as a scientist because she builds the instruments that mm -hmm. then they have to, that then they use to, you know, find out. Mm -hmm black matter mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or whatever it is that I'm, I'm not that knowledgeable in that. So that's another dichotomy, right? Like, and actually that's one of the reasons why I, well, I became an organizational scientist or organizational psychologist is because from the beginning, when I decided to do a doctorate, I wanted to do something that always had a escape route. <laughs> like, you know, like when you have plan B, just in case academia doesn't work. <laughs> I'm glad that you were so fastidious. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I always thought, you no, know, no, no, I have to, st to study something that, you know, is applicable, is easy to then transfer. And I always have had that backdoor. I all, and it's such a relief. And that's why, you know, I want to do transdisciplinary research and I want to do collaboration. And I have always done collaboration. You see, you look at my CV, yeah. very few first author publications yeah. and a ton of publications with a ton of people. Yeah. And it has been hard. It has been interesting sometimes. But hey, I'm here. Am I queer? So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's you know interesting. So as you mentioned that, it reminded me because I was I used to be the, the chair of the Department of Basic Sciences a few lifetimes ago. <laughs> and I was a basic scientist in clinical education. And so it was people who were in the health sciences that were clinicians. And so oh, yeah. I had to teach them neuro and sometimes physiology or histology. Oh, yeah, or, like neuroautonomy, right? Like, ana, yeah. Ana, ana, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. So if you're teaching neuroanatomy, you're like literally teaching them, you know, which neurons and which part of the brain or the spinal yeah. cord or the peripheral nervous system are related to others. And it's you have to give clinical relevance to what you're doing. But then they would have another class called clinical assessment or clinical neurology or clinical who had no idea of the basic foundations of what they were teaching. And they would say, like, well, if somebody comes in and their pupils are dilated, it means this. And if somebody comes in and they're unable to raise their right leg and reflex, it means this. And and Without connection? Without to, there were zero oh. connection. And so one time I said, has anybody in the basic sciences faculty ever just gone to a clinical classroom and, and asked the students as they're going through these exams that they tested on, why did you do that? What happens if it looks like this instead? What does that mean? And they do that later on. They do that in their rounds when they're mm -hmm. residents and things like that kind of training. But in their basic training, the it's translating. It's very siloed, right? Extremely siloed. And it is hard because I learned neuroscience on a very different model than a mm -hmm. living, breathing human. You know, like I learned slides. I learned molecular 
anatomy and pathways with microscopes and things. And here you have a really living, breathing. So I would have to be like, okay, learn this, learn the clinical stuff, review the basic science stuff, and make the jump, make the jump, make the jump, and have to come up with a way to get students on board. And that's really what started me realizing this huge silo problem gap of what you said, the basic to the supplied sciences. Mm -hmm. And the realization of how many people live in that in that um, duality. They, they live with the dissonance. Mm-hmm. Like, I learned foundations, and then I live in reality. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> foundations connect to reality. You have to understand how things work so that you can use that knowledge in the world. And I think that that is a that this kind of problem is one that is more appropriate than ever to be addressing because you have a world that's in deep need of problem solving and you have less and less devoted to foundational ideas. So you go to school to become, you know, a, right, a, a, an aerospace engineer yeah. who just does one thing. And a lot of us going through this, I mean, I don't know if you're in the same exact generation, but we were... were what did you mean? <laughs> no, but, but there's, there's a moment where mm-hmm. something changed where I am... We are in the same generation, by the way, but there's a moment when we, we really shifted from like being capable of doing a bunch of different things and then specializing to going straight into the specialty. And it almost requires a need for us to reevaluate our foundations again, because we never learned them that well in the first place. And that's why they were able to justify just going straight into a specialty. But now you have people who are making political decisions who know nothing about science, for mm. instance. Yes. And, and we see it all the time. And we're so encouraged to be specialized because of the world that we're living in that you tend to make really misinformed decisions because you don't have the basics to be conversant with the other people, even though you might be fluent in your one thing. And also, we lack the ability, and that's where we're going to be. To I'm going to be putting my plug about like diversity please, uh, and inclusion. Please. Okay, if if we are so specialized, what does that mean? That we have to bring the talent together, like all this diverse talent, and put it together and have conversations. So not only you need to have the ability to converse, but you need to have the ability to to bring people to a table where everybody coming from different directions, different places, different identities feel that you know they belong to that table yeah and and that's the other the other problem that we're having here and 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 kind of like thinking oh because i'm specialized on this um i can do this and i don't have to talk to anybody else Mm -hmm. and and when we need to have a lot of different specializations or different people they are coming from very different backgrounds and we're like well you don't look like me Mm -hmm. how how do we do this together? And and actually, I don't, I don't, I don't feel comfortable because you don't look like me. So I don't think that we can group work in this team, right? Deep, deep disciplinarity um, can't. It runs the danger. It's not necessarily so, but it runs the danger of exclusivity. I'm only this kind of person. I'm only this kind of thing. Deep specialization run. It, it also runs this danger of exclusivity. One of the things that I think is largely lacking in the literature around inclusivity is how it combats these problems of exclusivity, not just in an equity-oriented way, 
because it certainly is necessary for equity-oriented mm-hmm. conversations. And I think that's another interesting point. But inclusion itself is necessary for the complexity of the world that we're in. And because of that, it's a really strong transdisciplinary concept too. And we don't look at it as inclusion just means or inclusivity just means butts in seats. I mean, that's like this really, it's, it's, it's such a half-baked approach to inclusivity. It's, it's not, I mean, I guess it can get worse if you just are exclusive, it's worse. Yeah. We, we actually want to look at it like, okay, as you said, I'm coming from an ontological space that looks very different than the person next to mine, and both of us are going to have something valuable to contribute to this problem solving. How do we create those bridges between us so that we can then both find the common ground to work on this together? And instead of like, I hate working in groups with people who aren't like me because (laughs) nothing gets done. Like, that's exactly the wrong way to think about it because, got news, the real world is like this. And if you look at everybody as a nuisance, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, Yes, you're right, then they are a nuisance. If you look at people as potential and you understand the necessity of inclusion and an inclusivity as a principle, then you understand how powerful, to go, come back to that idea of power. And the transdisciplinary world would really, really benefit from merging with those kinds of conversations, because I think in some senses we're really stuck on sustainability, which is also super important, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that we've really bonded well with the scholars that are coming from organizational theories, from cultural theories, from a lot of these different disciplines where they've done great work with inclusion and understand it in a more sophisticated way to bring that back to the transdisciplinary table. I think that's one of the things we do here too. Yeah. Yeah. And actually like we, um, we should be doing more of that. I think that I'm, I'm working with Shamini Diaz on on a on a course to think about belonging and and, and inclusion and allyship in a way that transcends that. Right. Um, one of the things that when we think about inclusion, one of the things that um, we I have been working with one of the students in my lab, uh, Cecilia Dotzler. She is defending on Tuesday. I know. I saw it on the website. And. Her work is pretty cool because um, we came up with this idea. Well, we didn't come up with this idea. We read this idea <laughs> somewhere and we, pro- and we put it in the dissertation. Uh, but we kind of like define it a little bit more in terms of like, what is the difference between inclusion and belonging? And inclusion in terms of behaviors and belonging in terms of experience. And I will get to what you were saying okay. that way. So I am an insider, right, of the academia. Mm-hmm. And you may be an outsider of the academia, for example, or of a research project or whatever, for you to feel belonging, for you to feel that you belong in this space with me, working with me and sharing ideas at the same level and feeling what we call psychological safety to be able to uh, to feel that you can make mistakes when you say things because that is going to help to continue uh, in, uh, inquiring into the problem. In order for you to feel belonging as an outsider, I, the insider, I have to do some kind of inclusion behavior to bring you in. Mm-hmm. So I, I found this very simple concept very interesting because it kind of is giving people, is putting the responsibility and the effort and the agency and the labor in the people that should be doing the agency and the labor. Mm-hmm. Because so far, whenever we say inclusion, diversity, uh, and equity, and we throw belonging in there, mm-hmm. 
it feels like the minorities are the ones who have to do all yeah, the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the outsiders, let's call them the outsiders, whatever it is. And we never think about but what about the insiders? The mm -hmm. insiders are the ones who are the ones who are in and have to include. Mm -hmm. and, and the outsiders, of course, they will do their, their work because they want to feel like they belong, mm -hmm. but there has to be that, that aspect there. So, and that's why Sisi's um, dissertation is, is great because she ends up with, uh, with um, enough evidence to show that we can create a, a workshop or some kind of intervention to teach people how to include. Mm. And that she did it in a, in a STEM uh, context. That's very interesting. So it's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to that defense. Yes. Um, I also, though, remind, was reminded as you were talking, because you said allyship. Allyship is a similar mirror to that, in that the burden of the work should be, in the idealized yes. world, on the person who wants to be the ally, which is always sometimes a tough pill to swallow, because there's a little bit of grace involved with that. You have to like say, like, I'm in the position of power. I'm part of the dominant group. I need to recognize that space where I'm given more power in this context And I need to use that as an ally would use that. And what is interesting about, and I, I would love our listeners to, to really get this, allyship is not an identity, it's a verb. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it's to be. It's to be an ally, it's to behave as yeah. an ally. And that's why, you know, the, the whole, uh, that dissertation with that, with that intervention is kind of, kind of crafting that. How do you craft your own allyship practice? Mm -hmm. We just don't use the, the word allyship because... Yeah. You know, nowadays you use certain words. Well, because and allyship lost its meaning very quickly because mm -hmm. the burden of work was put on the minoritized exactly. group yeah. to say, to tell me what to do, rather than understanding that allyship is a process of entrustability or similar way where people can learn to believe that what you are doing is in their interest as well and not the historical relationships that that yeah. power dynamic had led to. And being okay if that's what the minority understands from that action mm -hmm. and correct that action if the minority understands yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. Like, is continuous work. Yep. And you will, you know, doing allyship means making mistakes. Mm -hmm. and, and doing allyship implies taking risks. If you don't take a risk... That's not allyship. Well, I, I want to bring this back to something you said, though, about academia also. The, the essay you wrote, or the paper you wrote a couple of years ago about relationality, because this is this dichotomy I keep seeing pop up, the conflict we have, and how you do things in a relational matter, how you do things in a transactional matter. Mm -hmm. And in a relational matter, you allow yourself to screw up sometimes. Yes. <laughs> and, and people forgive you for that, and they understand it's the long term of what you're doing together which is what good collaboration is about. That's what a good boundary crosser is. A transactional version of boundary crossing is one where power dynamics are very clearly set. The idea is that you need to each be getting something out of this, ultimately to gain more power in whatever realm you're, mm -hmm. you're in. And if it puts both of you at risk for one being over the other in terms of power, then you will not collaborate. Exactly. And it encourages you to stay in your silo mm -hmm. if you're going to collaborate. So it becomes strictly transactional. It's because it's mutually beneficial for you to both gain power in your own space when you're done. So it stops the collaboration after that. Like both of these things are problematic when you have a problem like sustainability or you have a problem like exactly. like racial equity or if you have a problem like healthcare or if you have like 
if you think that what you're going to do is a transaction to solve healthcare, like what planet are you on? <laughs> Come on, wake up, you know? And so I think that this kind of mindset shift, and this this is something that, you know, Shamani Diaz and I talk about a lot, is how do you actually get yourself to become an earworm in a, in a, a, a forming scholar to be like, don't ignore the obvious. Like, don't let the acculturation into a disciplinary mindset be the thing that dictates the rest of your career. Do the disciplinary thing because you have to become fluent. Yeah. But always remember that the point of this is something bigger because there's a world out there. And you have to keep thinking and practicing and messing up and collaborating. And, I mean, we say failing upward, but... You know, learning yes. learning the why of why someone else cares about this in a different way than you do, and learn from from every endeavor that you take on because that's the whole point of it not not to just show results. It's mm-hmm. it's not all transactional. Yes. So, how do you do that? Yeah, I know. If you could see here, we have a standing ovation from all of our audience with, with that soapbox. Um, all of our audience being each other. <laughs> But mindset is a much more difficult thing to not. It's, it's a much more um, long-lasting thing, but it's not a factoid. It's not a multiple-choice answer on a test. It's it takes a lot of work. It's a um, lot. It's a lot. So my other student, <laughs> another student, Alisa Birbam, she's uh, working on high-quality connections and how creating high-quality connections lead to more energizing relationships, and then that can lead to more engagement and less burnout in the workplace. And high-quality connections so are those that are created between two people, and they, cannot, they don't have to be relationships. They can just be you know, a moment, a connection where... I value, I show my value for you as a human. I empathize with you. I take perspective taking. I show that I trust you. I facilitate your performance, but not expecting that you will facilitate mine. And and kind of like building this connection that is not based on what we talk about, um, you know, like the theory of socialist change. And that is very, very, very like American or Anglo- and the idea that there's a norm of reciprocity. If I do something for you, you will do something for me. And until you don't do something for me back, you're going to feel very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's the psychology of it. Mm-hmm. Socialist change is I was back in my other university helping a colleague of mine uh, with their, their newborn baby. I was staying while he was teaching so his wife could sleep because the baby was not sleeping and they didn't want to, you know, like someone had to be there awake. So I did that during a couple of weeks so he could teach and everything. And the reason why I was doing that was because they were my friend and I wanted to create um, a stronger uh, bond with them. When all when he stopped teaching, they gave me like a very nice present. It was a massage. So I went, I got my massage. It was great. Then the baby became... You know, he made it to one year yeah. and good, more. Good, good, Still alive. Glad to hear. And they did invite me to the to the first, you know, mm. the first birthday party. Interesting. And I was like, "What happened? What did I do wrong?" And nothing, nothing is wrong. They're not bad people. Yeah. I'm not super good people neither. I was just coming from my cultural values of mutuality by doing things for other people. I make relationships stronger and I create my network 
of social support and I was okay. I didn't need a massage. <laughs> right, of course. Right? Like, well, I need them. I always need a massage. <laughs> but I didn't need that reciprocity right away. Yeah. For them, they felt that it was a big favor that I was doing. Yeah. So they they actually were like, okay, we give her this massage. We show that we are super grateful. And then that's it. There's no tension anymore for right. exchanging. Right. And that's great. And for me, it was like, okay, you don't want me in your life anymore. Mm-hmm. So it feels very instrumental. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to figure this out. And, you know, you were, we were talking about the cultural awareness and living yeah. in different countries, right? So, yeah. so this is um, something that once I realized, I was like, wow, like my, my take on, on how I relate to other people comes from a very different cultural background mm-hmm. than what, I'm, what I encounter here in, this, in, in North America, for mm-hmm, example. Mm-hmm. And from more Latin um, backgrounds or cultures, we have a sense of mutuality. And that's kind of like the sense that Jane Dutton talks about when she talks about high quality connections. And is that it's not socialist change. It's the idea that we are committed to the growth of each other. And there's a lot of relational theory mm-hmm. um, about the idea of growth not based on competition, but based on, on mutual growth mm-hmm. and helping each other. Mm-hmm. The stone center of relational theory is mm-hmm. where they started all that. So then imagine how hard it is to get that mindset when your cultural base yeah. is really based on that idea of socialist change. Yeah. When your cultural base in base is based on a patriarchal, heteronormative yeah. society. Uh, where competition and toxic masculinity are kind of making everything move. Mm-hmm. So it really is hard to mm-hmm. change mm-hmm. a mindset when when the foundation that you're working with is that. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's going to be one person at a time mm. and kind of spreading the love. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I do that with my students. It changes a lot when you mentor students. I mean, you, you can see... Because you create generations of people yes. that also think like this too, or understand the benefit. You don't have to. You don't have to program someone. It's just a matter of, like, helping people see that it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, I try to, and I try to do that with the students in my in my lab, but also with the students that come to my to my classes. I taught this uh, the rainbow class. Remember? Yeah. Uh, uh, we call it the rainbow class. But yeah. It's sexual, sexual and gender belonging. Yeah. And in that class, there were people from different disciplines, but we were talking about belonging. The gender and sexual belonging was just a excuse to talk about diversity. And we talk a lot about, you know, different intersections. Uh, we talk about Gloria and Saldua and the borderlands, right? And, and being Latina and being queer. Uh, we talk about a lot of very um, different aspects of, of belonging. And I had people transform themselves. Like, I had a student who was doing uh, cognitive psychology, like the most basic of the psychology, who at the end of the course, and he came to my course because he needed more, two, two units more or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. He was just changing his whole philosophy about how he was going to run his lab yeah. and how he was going to bring his identity as Latino yeah. to the lab mm-hmm. because he thought that as an academic, he couldn't bring his identity right, right. To, to research and to academia. Yeah. And I was like, yes. Yeah. And it was, you know, if it was only the, and I know that there were more students that benefited from that class, but if it was only one student that year in all my time in CGU, super happy. I'd say a lot of our students and a lot of our faculty are open to this. And that's the fun part. Mm-hmm. If not, I'd even say most. Yes. And and that's that's one of the fun pieces of being here is that it's easy to have colleagues like you where if 
you know, I'm introducing myself for the first time. You end up poking your head out and being like, I want to talk more about this because <laughs> I am, you know, and, and the other really cool thing about this and the conversations we're having is that one's version of transdisciplinarity doesn't have to be the same as someone else's version of transdisciplinarity. Your focus, it's such a big thing. It's such a challenge to our traditional version of scholarly life. Yes. And so there are as many possibilities as there are people in, in how we want to re interpret what that means. It doesn't mean give up the stuff that's really beneficial, but it's understanding the appropriateness for a model that was created with certain privileges in mind, with certain world views, views with, with, <laughs> certain, with a certain amount of separation from reality as, mm-hmm. as a privileged space that really hasn't served us very well in our modern environment. Like we, we can't, it's not even not serving us all. We can't afford to do that anymore. As fun as it is, as fun as it is to either get lost in something that is like a Netflix binge or someone else's TikTok videos, and that's all great. No, it's not great. I was there for an hour last night. No, it's not great. great. It's great to (laughs) unwind, but like those things need to, it's not all that different than getting lost in one of your favorite researchers if you're not Mm going to do anything about it. Like at the end of the day, yeah, you read it to self-cultivate, to become a part of another person's world, to see things from a different point of view. There's there's benefits to all these things, but there's the end what question that comes after that. And that end what is so big. You know, are you going to are you going to the end what because you are because you're teaching people? Is that your end what? Are you end what because you're starting a nonprofit because you're going to be in charge of the corporate responsibility arm of your big company? Like You have so many options, but the one that will probably least serve the the greater population of this planet, including animate and inanimate objects, is (laughs) hyper-specialization. And first authorship. And first authorship, (laughs) right. Yeah, Yeah, I actually think that what you're saying is that Apart from your motivation and your goal of what, uh, you know, apart from the intrinsic motivation of knowledge and inquiry for the pleasure of obtaining it, that for academics is almost pornographic. (laughs) What you're saying is that people should transcend that into a social applied, I don't know how to... Well, it goes back to what you said about Picasso. Mm -hmm. Like, Picasso didn't get born a genius. No. You know, Picasso became Picasso because of a lot of other people and a lot of other influences in his life. Mm -hmm. Experiences. Um, Experiences. And we're all like that. And and I think that there's a certain amount that we owe back to the things that have given us the capacities to to do this this specialized work in a specialized place, but to then reintroduce it to the world in a way that needs that from us. It's it's relational. Mm-hmm. It's understanding the context of what it was and not just that I was, I worked hard, I deserve, I am, I am doing my path. Mm. And I think as long as we have that narrative, doesn't mean you have to all be Mother Teresa. Like, oh, no, we're no, not, no, no, no. It's actually there's, um, who's, I think it was Joyce Fletcher uh, is one of my favorite scholars. She talks about relational practice as please don't do it as a mother. Like, not, yeah. it's not, like, mutuality and helping each other growth is not a mother, what is it, motherly 
Yeah. Not in a motherly fashion yeah. because the motherly fashion is, I will do everything for my children yeah, no. and I don't need anything in return. No. Yeah, no, that's not. It's not cute. <laughs> I mean, I, it yeah. is. It is what it is. It is, right. it is at the end exhausting. Our moms don't get. Yeah, no, it's very hard. <laughs> like, but but I think in terms of what we're doing as scholars, mm-hmm. um, we have just a giant space to occupy right now. And to keep hiding from people who deny climate change or to keep hiding from people who deny the efficacy of a vaccine or to keep hiding from people who don't allow you to talk about sex and gender. If you keep thinking that optimism is a strategy, you're wrong. (laughs) It is not. It never has been. And so this is the whole point of of what education can do, if, if we're going to think about that, it's it's helping us become the version of ourselves that can really give back in this way. And that's how optimism works. Optimism works through hope. Yeah. You know, you have to be optimistic yeah. and hopeful mm-hmm. that you will be able to transcend yourself to help and to make change, yeah. right? Gloria, this is, as always, wonderful chatting mm. with you. Thank you for joining us today. It was a Thank great conversation, you. and I look forward to more collaborations with you. Of course. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was a real treat. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Postnormal Times. Thanks to our guest, and thanks to our support from Claremont Graduate University. If you enjoyed Boundary Crossing with us and want to hear more, make sure you follow us, spread the word, and tune in to our next episode.